0: On
1: the
0: job with
2: Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's on the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach, and my name is Sally Rugg. Happy freedom, Sally. Is does it feel free now that lockdown is kind of over? How are you going with your newfound ability to wander the streets and uh, and not have to be in bed before nine o'clock?
0: <laughs> it's great, I guess. I mean, what is freedom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, it is. It's really lovely to be able to see friends, basically. Like, I, I mean, I'm excited about venues opening. I'm excited about my friends who uh, work in the arts or, you know, like own arts venues or run arts events. I'm really excited for all of them. But f- for me, I'm mostly excited about just like being able to see friends at, at home. A lot of my friends have young kids. Obviously, young kids love to be outside, but anyone who has or has had babies and toddlers, it's kind of like it's a bit of a rigmarole. Packing them up for a picnic. And then, you know what I mean? So it's just, it's much easier to sort of see each other when we can duck into each other's homes. And so, I'm really happy about that element.
2: Yeah, me too. And it's that thing also time to reflect about what the last, I mean, it's not over. The pandemic's not over. We're not pretending it is, but this change is fundamental to how we're dealing with it. Just reflecting how the last two years of predominantly for you and I and other people living in Victoria and other parts of Australia in and out of lockdown has changed us as people, has changed the way we work. Has changed our relationships for better and for worse. It's a lot to process in in a few days. If this feels like a milestone that's just passed, there's a lot of mixed emotions coming with it.
0: There really is. You know, there's been a bunch of articles and research being done from around the world around how pandemic lockdowns really do change things for a lot of people. You know, it can bring into perspective what people's priorities are and like what people really value in life. And I saw a a piece this week talking about the, the great resignation that's being expected here in Australia. And they saw it over in the US and they saw it in the UK and a couple of other countries. And the, the theory is, is that people who have been locked down in pandemics or have, you know, been otherwise separated from their family members because of borders or their workplaces, you know, because of lockdowns and all the rest of it. It's been kind of like a um, shock to the system, almost. And so what they've seen overseas is huge resignations of people who have decided, you know what, I'm not happy here. Like, I'll wait till the end of lockdown because I can't do, you know, I can't do anything. But I'm not happy in my job or I want to live closer to my family or I'm going to pursue you know, that dream career or that dream study or whatever it is because you only live once and people really valuing the freedom that they do have.
2: It's quite extraordinary. I was going to bring this up. I'm glad you raised this issue because I've been following this with real fascination. For those that don't know, it's been, as Sally said, dubbed, the great resignation or the great, great quitting, particularly in the United States, which is a little further down the track in terms of opening up in, in many respects. And literally millions of workers are walking away from their jobs, from frontline workers to senior executives, all just voluntarily calling time on their jobs in a massive reassessment of, of what people's priorities are. And it's extraordinary to watch.
0: It really is. And it makes me question... Like, I mean, I'm very fortunate in that I complete, I love what I do. I think being able to work as a campaigner and have, you know, be salaried for that work is such a profound privilege. And I, you know, I try not to take that for granted and I really love what I do. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, interested in pursuing a different career, but it does make me sort of reflect on, you know, living far away from my family or, you know, things that I've always wanted to do like I've always wanted to learn how to play the drums this isn't a career choice this is just like you know oh you know. it could be I'd love to learn how to play the drums for no for no reason other than I think it's a really cool instrument and I, I am interested in it but it's always been sort of like oh well I don't have time for that or uh, well I couldn't create time for that and yeah now I'm thinking post lockdown it's kind of like a reassessment of priorities and I'm like do I really
2: I think that learning to play what? the drums is also a really good test of the resilience of your <laughs> relationships at home. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Well,
0: we've, you know, if we've made it through a pandemic um, and that only brought us closer, then I think getting a drum kit is, will definitely do the same. Now, I know that playing the drums isn't quite the same as, you know, quitting your job to make a documentary or study nursing or travel the country or whatever it is, but that's my little dream.
2: We're going to follow up in the next few weeks on the great resignation because I I think it's a fascinating cultural phenomenon that we should take note of. But as we sort of emerge from this phase of the pandemic and head towards the end of another difficult year, we're also facing the prospect of a federal election. And that could be sooner rather than later. We've heard uh, Labor leader Anthony Albanese being reported to have said that he expects it may be a December 11 election. Even that soon, that of course hasn't been confirmed, but that's the way that people are thinking. And so that turns our attention to to the latest quarterly essay, which has been written by a young writer by the name of Leck Blaine, and it's called Top Blokes, The Larriker Myth, Class and Power. And Sally, we had a read of this and were fascinated by this particular piece of writing because it focuses on the chameleon that is Scott Morrison and how he's managed to market himself as the everyday bloke.
0: Yeah, I loved this quarterly essay. I think Lex's work really, yeah, hit the nail on the head with regard to Mr Morrison's sort of self-styling and self characterization I imagine that listeners of this particular podcast may remember um, when Scott Morrison uh, spilled Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and took the leadership of the Liberal Party. It was like overnight, literally the next morning after the spill, he was out um, like at some sort of sports field kicking a ball or throwing a ball around and he had like this trucker cap on you know he was like this instant sort of like that daggy dad larrikin character and for anybody who had sort of w- watched Morrison's ascent from you know entering parliament becoming the immigration minister and then treasurer well I certainly was like uh, you know like that's not real that's not who scott morrison is i've never seen this caricature before and yeah Lex's essay really encapsulates why and how scott morrison and many other politicians will sort of opt to stylize themselves as this cultural icon i suppose this archetype of the larrikin um yeah, and kind of what, the, what that says about politics and, and the, the impact that this larrikin myth can have on all of us.
2: It's a great read and uh, we should catch up with the writer. Let's meet Lech Blaine. <laughs> Sally, it's always great to get an edition of the quarterly essay in the mail. It's Brain Food in Lockdown, and God knows we need plenty of that because I've been watching too much Netflix and television. And the latest edition features a brilliant, an absolutely brilliant dissertation on Larrikin culture, the idea of the Australian male, the Australian mythology. It's called Top Blokes, the Larrikin Myth, Class and Power, and it's written by Leck Blaine. And Leck has joined us from his lockdown uh, central somewhere in Sydney Welcome to On The Job. Lek. how are you going?
1: Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, guys. Yeah, great to be here.
2: Congratulations on the essay, Lec, It really has hit all the right points for me in terms of a, a really deep dive into Australian identity and the politics of Australian identity. Let's start with asking you why you were inclined to write this. What sort of sparked the idea to, to put the time and effort into writing about this?
1: I've always been interested in larrikinism because I, I was sort of raised certainly in a Culture in country Queensland and that lionized Larrikins, and certainly um, it's a pretty macho sort of culture. And then um, I was also raised in a culture that happened to um by a dad who and, and a mum who loved the Labor Party and who were members just at a very grassroots level, members of the Labor Party. And so, yeah, it was sort of that old school Labor culture. And then obviously, I, I grew up with that, but then. As a teenager, I probably became a textbook sort of snob and very much felt quite, not on a conscious level, but felt ashamed about a lot of their mannerisms and, and their background. They, I think mum made it to the end of grade nine, dad made it to the end of grade eight. Um, and so I grew up, had a pretty comfortable middle-class upbringing, so I, I didn't face any of those same challenges. And, and um, yeah, as a result, I, I probably didn't have a lot of empathy for, uh, for them or their backgrounds. And then... All this stuff was percolating away. Australian politics was happening. A lot of these splits were sort of happening at a national level as well. Uh, And yeah, I I guess long story short is that this cultural split really, I think, became uh, the central split in a lot of progressive politics around the world. And so it was just natural at some point that I've been writing about. This sort of stuff for a few years now for the monthly, and so yeah, it, it, it's all the same stuff that I, I'm really obsessed with, and uh, and it was it was also popping up a lot more because I it it seemed like uh, I remember pitching um, the idea was pre Scott Morrison, it would have probably been eighteen months before he became the prime minister, and this idea that conservatives were now using the mannerisms of this working class and to, to win elections, and then Scott Morrison obviously came along and won an election doing like doing it better than anyone else previously, so there's a two threads there's a personal threads uh, and the cultural thread, and then there's the um the political thread, which is scott Morrison and I tried to fuse those two together and and, and understand what he was tapping into when he invented this persona
0: hmm and just for the for the benefit of all of our listeners making sure we're all on the same page t- together can you explain what you mean by a larrikin can you can you paint a portrait of perhaps who the larrikin the archetype of the larrikin is in sort of Australian identity and maybe talk a little bit about your interpretation and application of this character
1: well yeah my interpretation of a larrikin would be someone who's anti-authoritarian, someone who rebels against authority, someone who thumbs their nose at the establishment and does it in a way with a sense of humour and sort of a little bit of rogue charm. And I, I think that that was historically how these larrikins were seen and it just happened that a lot of them were men because of the the time that they emerged from. And then I think that because of this, this, like, male-dominated environment, a lot of the people who picked up the larrick and ran with it really embedded this idea that they were white men because that's who they were when when this figure first emerged. And that was a fairly organic process, maybe at the start, even if it had a lot of negative outcomes. But then I, I, I think increasingly it became used quite consciously by conservative politicians and by business people to... Uh, really entrenched this idea about who can be Australian and who's the most Australian because if, if you need to be, have those qualities to, to be the most Australian, well, then uh, it, it's going to exclude a lot of people and that's going to help, um, I think, probably exclude different kinds of leaders from, from emerging and, and succeeding at the top of our um, federal politics and, so, and, and also been used in other ways such as um, for militaristic reasons and I didn't really go to there in the essay but yeah certainly this idea of the the digger who was very much like a classic sort of larrikin has been used to help legitimize military operations overseas in the in the 21st century so yeah there's a lot to it but I, as i said I, I think at a basic level it, it is this idea of being anti-establishment there's no reason that um the, that you need to be a a white straight bloke to be anti-establishment and if if anything if you are a white straight bloke you're probably going to be a member of the establishment, so it's it's hard to be uh, <laughs> it's hard to be that anti-authoritarian.
0: Yeah, and there is no greater and more powerful member of the establishment at the moment than Prime Minister Scott Morrison, right? But Scott Morrison, really, uh, you write in your essay about how he sort of like put on this larrikin costume in order to take the top job. Can you talk us through how you saw that playing out and? And, and your response to sort of watching this transformation in front of your eyes?
1: Yeah, well, he, he's certainly never called himself a larrican. So with Scott Morrison, it's all about images. He disseminates like a constant stream of images that appeal to seemingly contradictory uh, members of, of the electorate. And so the the images that he draped himself in were, were were textbook larrican. I even had my brother who was Scott Morrison's biggest fan the last election, he said, I love the guy. He's a he's a classical arrogant. He loves a beer. He he loves to go to the footy. He's just like one of us. Uh, and then obviously, when you go through Scott Morrison's background—not even early background, but quite recent background—like he isn't just like one of us. Like the, by definition, anyone who makes it to the prime ministership is not an everyman or an ordinary person. And so, what happened was we sort of this movement right around the world where there was a real longing for this nostalgic sort of figure or, or, or someone who was an outsider, wasn't sort of a member of the political elite. Scott Morrison is very much a member of the political elite, but uh, yeah, reinvented himself as this rugby league loving cubby house building sort of guy who constantly bashes up on journalists and the Canberra bubble, uh, the Canberra bubble sort of meaning politicians and journalists and um, commentators. And so and I think that that was really successful at the 2019 election because generally the electorate didn't really know who the guy was. He he hadn't um, been in public consciousness for that long. Uh, a lot of our other prime ministers had spent people like um, Abbott and Turnbull, for, for instance, who preceded him. They'd been in public life for a very long time and they'd spent so much of that time constantly offering their opinions about different things, whereas... Yeah, Scott Morrison was such a blank slate that it was quite easy for him to just fabricate this new identity that when you dig deeper, obviously doesn't actually have much um, – doesn't have any authentic connection to a lot of the things that he purports to, to be in love with such as – and it sounds superficial, but such as rugby League. He's a diehard uh, – was a diehard rugby union fan up until the point that he made this ScoMo identity and even stuff like drinking beer. Like he's, he's a deeply devout Pentecostal Christian who – by his own admission, has never been drunk and wasn't allowed to join the surf club as a teenager because the people there were drinking. And so, I, you know, I, I grew up in a pub but, and, and, and was raised in this sort of alcohol-drenched culture. Like, I, I don't see that as all positive. Like, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not trying to hold people, you know, I, I don't want people to all be raging lunatic drunks. But there is, yeah, there is a certain level of inauthenticity with Scott Morrison that I think goes beyond the average politician.
2: Like what also is drawn out in your essay is that the Labor Party has allowed the likes of Scott Morrison to wear the cloak of the Larrykin or the working class lad or bloke um, because it's in a way abandoned its... Core constituency, it's traditional core constituency, and you talk about that from your own experience, your family's experience in Ipswich and in coal mining communities, where highly unionised communities who were died in the wool, labour voters believed in the labour movement and saw the labour party as their in lockstep with that community, and that wrench has occurred over a number of years as. I guess starting with the likes of Gough Whitlam, who inter- brought an intellectual edge to the Labor Party, he was not of that particular ilk. He wasn't born in a working class community, though his sort of great charisma and his empathy for, for for a sense of equality made him a giant of the movement. But from then on, we saw this intellectual class start to take over in the Labor Party, which didn't look, sound, act, or talk like the people they purported to represent. So, an opportunity opened up, didn't it, to exploit that gap and later. Labor wasn't aware of it, and the Labor movement found itself suddenly seeing its people being attracted to a different kind of working-class identity. The, the Howard Butler mm. became a thing, and, and Morrison's tradies, and, and all of that stuff started to happen without Labor even recognising what was going on.
1: Well, yeah, it's such a complicated thing because there's so many social and economic forces, uh, and many of them global, that were sort of feeding a lot of this stuff. But, yeah, it is true. Like, you look at so- someone like Whitlam, and... I had that great conversation with my dad's old mate, Bruce, who said that he wouldn't be out of the Queen or Mick Jagger, but like Goff Whitlam was his absolute hero. And he was like, you know, working class through and through. Uh, son of a coal miner and finished high school at the end of grade 10 and joined the, the railway. So I don't think it's that working class people are longing for people who are just like them. I think that there's other, like all these other things that happen in terms of the way that... um union membership in Australia went from being so strong to not being strong. A lot of these people, such as my brother, John, who once upon a time probably would have gotten a trade or joined a unionized workforce out of school. By the time that he finished school, that just wasn't really occurring anymore. And and if you did, you probably weren't joining a union. And so someone like my dad or someone like Bruce, they weren't born with a a Labor Party voting gene. like There was no reason they needed to vote for the Labor Party, but they, at a very basic level, as teenagers, they felt like they belonged to a team, and they felt like that team stood up to them against the, the other team, and the other team was the people with all the money and the privilege and the power. And so that was a very basic, innate thing, and it was easy for them to see. And that became very hard for people like that to see increasingly because as a professional class of politician emerged, there wasn't really that much to dif- differentiate between the two sides, at least on a uh, image level. It created this space for these conservatives who all come from the same social class as a lot of the Labor politicians now. They're all uh, like the, the biggest inner city elite in the country is the conservative elite. They're the most powerful. They've got the most money and they've got the most influence. But they've tapped into this idea that people have certainly more and more out of suburban and regional and rural seats that there's all these powerful politically correct figures running the country who look down on them. And unfortunately, and I use my own experience as a teenager that I did look down on my own family and I condescend to my own family. So this isn't something that I'm, um, it's not totally conscious all the time, but there is this disconnect and there is this idea like what would um, some of these people know about politics and as I said there's a lot of things that caused this historically but uh, at a fundamental level I feel like that the evaporation of the union movement and the and, and Labor's sort of move away from these communities allowed that that space to, to, to occur because back then when you know when Bruce for instance finished school and joined the railway and I think he was 17 the year that Gough Whitlam got elected he very much felt like he had cultural and political power he was a member of a union he was a member of a political party that was directly connected to the work that he did. And so uh, he didn't feel like he was adrift, even though he was an Ipswich, it didn't feel like he was that adrift from power because you had a say and you had a direct sort of power over your employer, by through striking, yada, yada, yada. And so I I just don't think that that really exists anymore. People in those areas just feel so far away from, from power and from having any sort of concrete influence over their own political representation.
2: I'll just ask a follow up on that as a unionist and, and somebody who works for Australian unions we honestly believe that we can still build those bridges back to the to building that sense of permanency in people's lives but do you, do you think that there's still that scope to do that
1: well totally like if you look at the union movement. like It wasn't like an ancient and the Labor movement and the Labor Party itself. Like It's a pretty mo- modern phenomenon. The membership has dropped off to some extent, but if you look at a lot of the issues that are popping up, they're not exactly the same as what happened when the union movement originally emerged. But there is a genuine sense, I think, that people their wages have stagnated, their conditions aren 't as great, and they 're being in a lot of industries, including blue collar industries they 're being shafted for casual workers and or they are casual workers who don 't feel like they have any they have any permanency at all and, th- and that is the real opportunity for the labor party and also for obviously the trade union movement is to vocalize why that is happening, and that culturally you don 't need to have uh, you, you don 't need to have a university education you don 't need to is you look at an issue like climate change you don 't really need to see climate change as a moral issue or a social issue or anything like that it 's purely an economic opportunity for for these new industries to emerge that will potentially have a lot more power for, for people to create those those sort of long lasting jobs that that they're all sort of crying out for. And that's going to be hard because, you know, a lot of coal miners are not going to want to get rid of their jobs because they're so highly paid. But there's so many people in these communities who don't have coal mining jobs who are desperate for a for a, um, a permanent job. And I think that that's who you really talk, the Labor Party should be really talking to um, in this transition.
0: This is a um, bit of a, like, broad and perhaps philosophical question, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. So clearly Morrison and and many prime ministers and political parties before him, you know, going back to John Howard who did this very well, but, you know, most other politicians seeking power want to emulate this sort of larrikin spirit and certainly sort of speak to who they believe are, like the larrikins in the electorate, sort of such a quintessentially Australian character or sort of concept. Do you see that ever changing?
1: I think that it it's changing. And I think that what people want is changing. I, I think that certainly federal politics hasn't caught up with that yet. And even, you know, we talk about Scott Morrison being successful for this, but people are still generally uh, disillusioned with politics. Uh, the, the people who voted for him just saw him as the best of bad options. So, There is like a genuine hunger for authentic representation and that's why when the issue came up with like Thu Lee and...
0: Sorry, Thu Lee, the Vietnamese Australian lawyer who was set to be the candidate for the seat of, that Christina Keneally was um, then put up for.
1: Yeah, and and she mentioned it herself. She said, I'm not like the Aussie... I think she might even use the word larrikin or at least she that she was alluding to this identity and she said that this is like she couldn't be this person and this decision sort of reaffirmed to her the, the sense that she could never be that person but at least from my from my own interpretation of what larrikinism means in in any real sense like like she ticks a lot of the boxes she's really she's not just lived through a lot of struggle and and working class battle and she is like a working class battler um, in a a very genuine sense and she's also really sticking her neck out against authority in this sense like she hasn't stopped sort of fighting or speaking out or so she might not conform to a, a traditional idea of the larrikin but yeah people with these voices and people who have been historically disenfranchised are standing up and seeking political representation and that's like that's an amazing thing and I think that this whole idea of finding those those battlers in places like central Queensland like I interviewed Russell Robertson who's a third generation coal miner and I said I, I think that um, as much as it's controversial him being a coal miner I think that it's great provided that he's united with the Labor Party mm-hmm. on their ambitions for for climate change I think it's great to have a coal miner like that speaking to a coal mining community. I also think it would be amazing to have two speaking to her community and I think that the if you find these figures who are outside who who aren't professional politicians and you build up this like rich tapestry of people like that that's the only way that you get back to this idea that the Labor Party is representing those communities it's not actually finding the one figure like it's not actually finding this elusive Australian larrican and then having that figure in every single seat. it's like it's actually representing the diversity out there because the problem is when you only draw from the political class or from the, those professional politicians, is that it creates this sense that they're only like I, I think less than a third of the electorate have a university degree still, which or increasingly, when you talk about diversity, like we're nowhere near as white as what um, as what Parliament would make it seem like so there's a class element there's also the diversity element and i think that yeah the the more that you see those figures who challenge the status quo in some way like it doesn't need to it doesn't necessarily need to be a white coal miner Uh, i think to would have been a fantastic candidate
2: it's interesting you bring up russell because i worked with russell in 2019 on his campaign for capricornia uh, very mm. directly on his attempt to become the Labor member for that seat. And he would have been a brilliant representative for that coal mining community because Russell understands mm. the importance of a uh, the changing nature of the economics of coal and the reality of climate change and trying to find a way for his longstanding coal mining community to become a community of the future in a greener economy. But what happened was... Mm and this is written in your uh, uh, your your essay the split between parochials and cosmopolitans the cosmopolitans came to town in bob brown's car car cavalcade of green voters who used the seat of Capricornia and Russell Robertson's campaign as a backdrop to try and win the seat of Melbourne for Adam Bant by not speaking to the local community, not meeting any of the local miners, but just talking about miners as if they were the other and the outsider and alienating a broad uh, the, the broad section of the community in that environment in order to win a seat in the inner city. So we're talking there, aren't we, about that huge gap that you write about between cosmopolitans and parochials in those communities. And, you know, Russell doesn't get to be the local member there. That community is no uh, no further down the line to being able to transition to a future without coal. And the Greens get one seat in Parliament and nothing is achieved.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, I wrote an essay for the monthly after the 2019 election called um, – how good is Queensland, which I went on a road trip up to Mount Isa and traveled through a lot of these communities. And yeah, I interviewed, um, I interviewed I interviewed a bunch of people, but there's a couple of really interesting ones. One was a farmer in Clermont who, like Russell, was for generation Clermont, uh, he he'd actually been the leader of an anti-Adani um, community group from an agricultural perspective. Uh, and even for him, he said, all of these people who are actually anti-Adani before uh, the convoy arrived became pro-Adani purely because they saw it was like the enemy of an enemy. Like, a, you know, I don't see the Greens as an enemy. But I, I sympathize with a lot of their p- political positions. I've got two siblings who are diehard Greens voters. And so I, I, I'm not, I would, wouldn't want to demonize the Greens because I think they're pursuing um, noble aims. But In instances like that, yeah, crystallised everything that I was trying to say in the essay about this this split, and that for to have someone like that would just be brilliant because it's a perfect antidote to the whole idea that none of these people are being represented. And obviously, someone like Russ is probably going to be a bit more pro coal mining than the average member, but that's what you when you have talk about uh, representative democracy, you need people like that to be a part of this. a part of this transition otherwise it, it it doesn't it doesn't achieve anything because those communities don't feel like they actually have any, anyone who who is one of them at the table and you need to them to feel like they have a seat at the table otherwise you're not really going to make any headway um, in those communities which is what we've we've seen.
0: yeah and I think any community is going to know if things aren't hundred percent right and hundred percent authentic um, and I do just want to like quickly, defend that convoy, that Stop Adani convoy a little bit in that I I appreciate, I mean, I wasn't part of it. I just sort of observed it as well. But um, I think that the, that project and that campaign and effort like had a lot more nuance and deliberate planning and like really good intentions than, um, what the subsequent impact was, and so obviously the impact is what counts, and that's what the record will show. But I also know that like there were you know thousands and thousands of people who were involved in that project with the best of intentions, really thinking like oh, th- this is the way that we can connect this community, you know, like thinking that it was the way to go. Like we'll go up and see them. Um, obviously, it didn't it didn't work out that way, but it wasn't it wasn't a sort of like. I don't think it was quite as opportunistic as
1: the, the way no, it was. No. And, and I think that Bob Brown had actually done stuff like this historically. He'd been up to far north Queensland in terms of logging back in the 80s and, and had some uh, real success. And yeah, I, I, I think it was a perfect um, powder keg because not just because of all these, because of this, the uh, political forces that we're talking about that led to Trump and led to brexit and then was sort of bubbling away in australia but that uh at the same time the queensland media ecosystem had completely changed because news corp had bought uh all of these regional newspapers and they hadn't uh, previously and so you not only saw on from a national perspective this rolling 24-hour news coverage of this convoy and this idea that they that were that regional Queensland was being invaded, but then you had all of these, all of the, the newspapers in, you know, Rockhampton, Mackay, Townsville, all singing from the same hymn sheet. And so, I, I yeah, I don't think they could have anticipated the the response that it provoked. Like I think that uh, News Corp only bought a lot of those newspapers quite recently. But yeah, it was it was really the perfect storm.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for being here, Luke. It's been really great to speak to you.
2: Leck Blaine, the author of the latest quarterly essay. It's called Top Lokes: The Larrican Myth, Class and Power. It's a fantastic read. It's 90-odd pages of really great cultural and political analysis in a very straight-talking style, as we discovered there from Leck, and I highly recommend it, particularly as we head into the election, Sally.
0: I can't believe... So in the outro, you just slipped in there that could potentially be the 11th of December. Now, I haven't heard that. That is... A real mind blow um i i um didn't want to interrupt you there, but December the eleventh oh my gosh, and you know the way time works in this the year two thousand and twenty one December the eleventh could either be next week. <laughs> or like a year away. It's, it's very hard to understand how time works during the pandemic, but it doesn't feel very far away.
2: It's not very far away at all. It might not, as I said, be that uh, particular date, but there's a feeling within... Oh, sure, but it's... But it's possible and um, it, it'll all depend on whether the top bloke and larrikin at Yarralumla, though he doesn't live there, he doesn't live in the people's house, he decides to live on the uh, shores of uh, Sydney Harbour instead, decides to do it when he wants to. So that's what we're facing at the moment and we need to be ready for it because it's coming another great episode of on the job sally thank you so much have a fantastic week of freedom um and uh, i reckon double kick drum with a full cymbal setup <laughs> like a full heavy metal kit with the with the frame and the whole bit uh, you can wear some leather gloves and just just you know listen to your slayer album on on your headphones and just bash away at home and mm. you'll feel so much better
0: here's the plan i think I'll save up for a deposit for a house. That'll take me how old am I now? Sort of fifteen to twenty years from from here. I'll try and find somewhere that can have a like shed put in the back garden, and then I'll look at getting a secondhand drum kit from somewhere. That's I think that's the plan. And do you know what? That is the same spirit. Undoubtedly, that is underpinning the great resignation. You know, that just that can do attitude, that dream big. Drink big, drink big, drum loud.
2: That's how. That's how. Good on you, Sally. Catch you next week. Bye, Sally Rugg. You can follow at Sally Rug on the socials. Uh, I'm at St. Frankie. Give us a review. Give us your stars. Uh, Whichever podcast platform you're listening on, we love to hear from you. Uh, Our email address is in the bottom as well. If you want to send us a message uh, in the show notes, you can do that. And we'll catch you on next week's edition of On the Job.